A note before we begin, there's a brief discussion of a school shooting in this episode. If you'd like to skip over it, it starts at about 11 minutes in. It ends around the 15-minute mark. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Once upon a time, something was rotten in the state of Denmark, and it involved a king, not Hamlet, but a real Danish king who lived a century ago. One day, this king received a threat to his life in the form of a handwritten letter. Which was written beautifully with a beautiful penmanship and with a very formal introduction. The sender wrote, Circumstances over which I have no control command me to inform your majesty the heavy news that your majesty's life is in the gravest danger. By today's standards, it sounds fairly genteel. It had a date and everything and was built up exactly like an old-fashioned letter. This is Tanya Karoli Christensen. I'm a professor of linguistics and Danish language at the University of Copenhagen, Denmark. And she researches forensic linguistics. So forensic linguistics deals with any sort of connection or overlap between language and the law. And Tanya says that this very polished letter that was sent to the King of Denmark in 1910 is exactly what one might expect from a death threat of that era. Because while death threats and other threatening language are not normal forms of communication, the threatening language of any era tends to reflect the norms of that era. It's fascinating to look into threatening language over time because we see it in the genre of threatening messages that they reflect the time that they were written in. Humans have always threatened each other. Tanya says that we were probably doing it even before we had language. But for most of our existence on this planet, your threatener had to be close enough for you to hear them yelling or gesturing at you. We didn't get around easily, so chances are you also knew the person who was threatening you. Then came postal delivery, which brought new dimensions to threatening language distance, and the possibility of anonymity. As long as we still have that letter format, threatening messages actually took the form, typically, of letters. So they will have a greeting at the beginning, sometimes with a slur word for the recipient rather than their name, sometimes just their name, sometimes a combination, and then in sections like in typical letters, and then a sign-off at the end. Uh, It can even be regards or even sometimes kind regards. I mean, it's very surprising to see those norms of politeness in written language that were especially prominent for that letter format carried on into the threats. Because here's the thing about these messages. It's not like anyone sits you down and says, here's how to write a death threat. When you don't know actually how to do it, you've never been taught. There's no sort of template anywhere that you can look and you you don't have a book as you do for a job application, right? You can always check somewhere. So how does a job application look? What should I think about? What should I think about when I want to write a threat to someone? No one knows. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, I'm Kavita Pillay, and this is Subtitle, 
stories of languages, and the people who speak them. And fair warning that in this episode, we're going to touch on some dark topics to try to better understand what it means to live through an era in which issuing a death threat is as easy as sending a tweet. How did we get here? And how is the unprecedented surge of threatening messages reshaping us? Cubby, when I think about written death threats, I instantly get this image in my head of cut out newspaper headlines that, that are glued to a sheet of paper. I mean, is that a common thing? Right, the arts and crafts approach. In a way, this gets at Tanya's point that we're not taught how to write threats. So we rely on what we've seen. And definitely in movies and TV, that hodgepodge of single letters and words, that was a familiar trope. It was in The Bodyguard, which starred Whitney Houston as an actress and singer who receives death threats from a stalker. And in this scene, her stalker is watching her on TV while wielding these enormous glinting scissors, plus a blade to cut up tabloid headlines to write out her name and a slur. Then, you have everything, I have nothing. The time is coming when you shall die. And it's all very ominous. But it's also been played to comedic effect, like in The Big Lebowski. I received this fax this morning. As you can see, it is a ransom note. And the ransom note is one of these cut and paste letters that you mentioned, saying that Lebowski's wife is being held hostage for a million dollars. Bummer. Huh? This is a bummer, man. That's, uh, that's a bummer. The writers of these films used the familiar conventions of the time to convey a threat in a way that viewers could easily recognize. But both The Bodyguard and The Big Lebowski are very much 90s films. By the end of that decade, the internet has firmly entered our lives and our written communications are transforming. So if The Big Lebowski were set today instead of the 90s, the ransom note might be, I don't know, a tweet from anonymous troll or something like that. Or it would look like a subreddit or be broken up like a series of texts, because that's what the vast majority of communication looks like today. And it would almost certainly be sent from a phone or a computer because as ordinary written communication moved from handwritten and printed materials to screens, so did threats. And as the internet made communicating immediate and more casual, threats also became more immediate and casual. And today, because so much written communication happens on social media, written threats now look like DMs and Facebook posts. And as crazy as it sounds, a lot of threats these days include emojis. I think I have a pretty primal sense of what makes a message threatening, but I'm not sure if I could define it. Yeah, it seems a bit like that old definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. Tanya says that the basic idea of a threat is for the sender of the threat to communicate future harm towards someone else. A very simple instance would be, I'm going to kill you. So that's a threat. Everybody can recognize that as a threat. And it has these definitional characteristics. It has a representation of the sender, I, I'm going to kill you. And it has the harm, kill. And it has the victim, the one that you are communicating to you. Now, if someone says, 
I'm gonna kill you. They don't need to follow through for you to be scared. Because the main point of a threat is not actually to commit you to performing the acts that you're talking about, the main point of a threat is to intimidate the recipient. And there are many subtle ways to intimidate people. So we need to look at context. So context is everything when we are trying to assess whether a threat is dangerous or not. For instance, Patrick, I could share your address publicly because you're having a big party and you want lots of people to come. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. But the other thing is I could share your address because I'm angry at you and I'm trying to threaten you. Oh, right. Doxing. Yes, and doxing means releasing someone's personal info or their whereabouts, typically with the intention of harming them. Having our information out there is a norm of this era. So using that information to threaten people has also become a norm of this era. Threats are on the rise because of the internet. And while we should never dismiss a threat against someone, some threats are more serious than others. And I wanted to know, how do you separate signal from noise? So I talked to a forensic psychologist. Ironically, when I look at movies and TV series that depict my profession, the drama often appears far less dramatic than what actually happens in real life. This is Lisa Warren. She's an Australian forensic psychologist, and she specializes in threats to kill. I don't have car chases in my work. I've never kind of repelled out of a helicopter I've got a colleague who did that. But it's not, it's not that kind of drama. It's the drama of humans trying to find the most effective way they can to convey to those around them what it is that is bothering them and what they need. Lisa says that some categories of threats are inherently more worrisome than others. Domestic violence threats are the most concerning. But after threats by family members, she says the highest risk group that she deals with are people known as persistent complainers. Oh, that's interesting. Persistent complainers. But that kind of sounds more annoying than threatening. Yo, I thought the same thing, but it turns out a persistent complainer is someone who has a grievance and they're heavily invested in it being addressed and they'll spend months or sometimes years pursuing some kind of resolution. And the more time they spend without getting the outcome that they seek, the more desperate they get. Lisa says that the case that showed just how high risk persistent complaining can be happened in Scotland in the mid nineties. And it involved a man named Thomas Hamilton. Thomas Hamilton was accused of behaving inappropriately with boys that he was taking away on outdoor recreation camps. And he argued that he did no such thing and that it was extremely unfair that his reputation was ruined. He complained for a very long time in a range of different ways about the damage that had been done to his reputation and about the damage that had been done to his life with these allegations. Thomas Hamilton spent four years writing letters to parents in the community where he lived. He wrote to various local and national authorities, including the Scout Association. They had barred him from their organization years before. And in these letters, he also mentioned a grudge against a local school, the Dunblane Primary School. In March 1996, he wrote to the Queen. He wrote to the Queen of England? 
Well, he wrote an appropriately formal typewritten letter to Queen Elizabeth. He addressed it to Your Majesty. He signed it Your Obedient Servant. And he was writing to the Queen because she was the royal patron of the Scout Association. And said to her in the letter that she was his last resort and that he wanted her to support that his reputation should be restored. That, of course, didn't happen, and he went to the Dunblane Kindergarten and committed a mass homicide against kindergarten children, which is the Dunblane Massacre. The small town of Dunblane in central Scotland is tonight in deep shock and mourning after the massacre today of 16 children and their teacher in a local primary school. The children aged between five Don't blame, really stuck in the memory of everyone in the UK because I think because it was the only mass shooting at a school that there has ever been in Britain. I mean, imagine that. And right afterwards, the government made it even more difficult for citizens to acquire firearms. You know, when Lisa said the name Dunblane, I got chills because it was such a singular event. But I didn't know that the shooter had written to the Queen. And Lisa says that for people like her who study threats to kill, Thomas Hamilton writing, I turn to you as a last resort, that was a huge takeaway from the Dunblane massacre. It is one that, like a lot of exceptional and extreme cases, caused us to pause and rethink and look at one of the risk factors with persistent complainers, which is this idea of last resort statements. Last resort statements. So, so are they considered threats? Well, for folks like Lisa who spend their days trying to figure out which threats deserve attention and resources, the context of a middle-aged man who was a loner who's been shunned from the community for a loathsome offense. He spent years trying to restore his reputation, and then he writes to a head of state saying, I turn to you as a last resort. So it's not an explicit threat, like I'm going to kill you, but given the context, it's an implicit threat. Nowadays, of course, figuring out whether someone is going to act on a threat is a totally different proposition. It's podcast recommendation time. Every other week, Our Opinions Are Correct takes on a topic that's related to what we know, science, and to what we imagine, science fiction. And that's fertile territory for great discussion. Everything from the fate of the universe to how to write a good fight scene. The hosts of Our Opinions Are Correct are Charlie Jane Anders. She's an award-winning author of several science fiction novels and Annalee Newitz, the science journalist who writes for the New York Times and The Atlantic. I especially like the episodes where they focus on something commonplace, like food or crime or money, and then they look at these things through the prism of science and sci-fi, which often changes how we think about them. The podcast is Our Opinions Are Correct. You know where to subscribe, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. With the rise of the internet, it's never been easier to fire off a threat. And it's also never been easier to become the target of one, for reasons you might never imagine. Take the case of a woman who shared a story on Twitter about taking her four-year-old daughter to the dentist. Her daughter cried when she saw that it was a boy dentist, 
And when she found out there were no girl dentists at that office, she looked at her mom and said, why did we come here? That sounds like a story that might go viral on Twitter, but you're telling me this in an episode about death threats, Kavi, so I'm kind of worried now. Yeah, it did go viral on Twitter. I laughed when I saw it, but then within a few hours, an American conservative media commentator retweeted it and said that the mom was letting her child believe that sexism was widespread. Others jumped on that. They accused the mom of having a feminist agenda. Someone called the child things that I'm not going to repeat. Next thing you know, a cute story about a girl going to the dentist is drawing threats of violence and death threats against this family. Yikes. I mean, that's scary and totally absurd at the same time. Right. I mean, I don't have to tell you that we are in a politically fractured era. Even a cute story about a child going to the dentist can become a rant against feminists. But it also comes back to screens because interacting with someone on a screen is very different from being face to face with them. The screen itself can affect our ability to fully understand that we're interacting with a human. Tanya Karoli Christensen explains it like this. And we also know from psychology that there's something called the disinhibition effect. So this means that you lose some of your inhibitions, some of your barriers against the ways that you feel that you should normally act, some of your norms for uh, social action. You lose them when you sit behind a screen. So because you cannot see the other person face to face, you don't have any eye contact typically, you don't think of them as a person, uh, a full person with a full life. Oh, that sounds a little like road rage. Right. That's probably our closest precedent, you know, a machine that can be used for good purposes or bad. And that little bit of glass and metal gives us just enough distance from our fellow drivers to affect how we behave towards them. The difference with the internet is that screens can make our interactions less personal and more personal. Social media and the internet enable us to learn so much more about each other and each other's culture, gender, backgrounds. And because of that, Lisa Warren, the forensic psychologist, she says that threats are taking on a new level of specificity and personalization. So I'm seeing threatening statements that are increasingly personal, that very ad hominem, which is an unusual turn of events when you're talking about two people that have never met one another. This can happen in any realm. Lisa consulted on a university case in which a professor was being targeted but not only was that professor a target, people seen in photos online with that professor, that academic, they were also being targeted. And it was very personal. They looked at the, the academic's research, talked about how they were less of a person because they were publishing on in this journal and not that journal. And there was clearly quite a degree of research that had gone into this campaign and this particular person was targeted for a number of months. So we move from being in the realm of just looking at the threatening behaviour to being very clear that this is now a stalking case. It's really, it's really tough just keeping your head around just how much the internet has reshaped threats in just a matter of a few years. 
I mean, legally speaking, has the law been able to keep up? It's different in different places. Um, in the U.S., there's the added element of state laws versus federal laws. In all states, harassment and stalking are crimes. Most states also specify electronic methods of harassment, but not all. And it also varies around the world. In Denmark, Tanya Karoli Christensen notes that there's a specific statute that concerns serious threats against someone's life or well-being. And a benefit of having a specific statute like that is that you can then collect data about it and try to understand patterns. How is the growth in online platforms affecting threats? Are there changes in reporting patterns? What happens when there's a major event like the pandemic? But data has its limits. And that brings us to the 800-pound gorilla. The choices being made inside of Facebook are disastrous for our children, for our public safety, for our privacy, and for our democracy. And that is why we must demand Facebook make changes. Frances Haugen testified in front of Congress in October 2021 because she was a data scientist and engineer who worked at Facebook. And she came forward with a huge trove of documents showing that Facebook had the data to prove that its platform was being used to incite violence around the world. And that's everything from the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol to religious violence in India to ethnic violence in Ethiopia. Here she is testifying to the U.K. Parliament. There might be a place like Myanmar that didn't have any misinformation classifiers, like labeling systems, no hate speech labeling classifying systems, because their language wasn't spoken by enough people. They allow the temperature in these countries to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And when the pot starts boiling over, they're like, oh, no, we need to break the glass. We need to slow the platform down. Frances Haugen's argument is that Facebook should not be allowed to make those decisions on their own. Right now, Facebook and all social media sites are allowed to govern themselves. And she makes the point that we don't let other massive industries run themselves without government oversight. We regulate banks. We regulate cars. And when an industry is shown to be dangerous, we put a stop to it. Think of big tobacco. Meanwhile, Facebook, with its nearly 3 billion users, is running free with no government oversight. And we have no idea how many threats are passing through their platform every single day. One last thing. You, you told the story right at the beginning of, of the episode about that Danish king who'd received a handwritten death threat. Did they ever find out who wrote it? Yes, that was a threat against King Frederick VIII. And the guy who wrote the threat demanded 10,000 kroner, which I guess was a lot of money back in the day. Um, he wrote that he wanted to move on the other side of the ocean to America. Who knows what happened to the letter writer? The case was never solved. And the king died a few years later of natural causes. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to Michael Alde at Code Black Threat Management, to Ulrike Lerner at Heidelberg University, Tammy Gales at Hofstra University, and to Jim Fitzgerald. Thanks also to Allison Reed and everyone at the Linguistic Society of America. Tina Toby is our sound designer, and Allison Chow manages our social media and newsletter. The newsletter comes out every couple of weeks. We keep it short and newsy and a bit jokey. 
You can sign up for it at subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. That's subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. We're a bunch of podcasters, all interested in telling stories that would otherwise slip by unnoticed. Like Open Source, the world's first ever podcast. It's a show about arts, ideas, and politics. Host Christopher Lydon always has great guests. People like Susan Choi, Rebecca Solnit, and Cornell West. Listen to Open Source and all the Hub and Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org or wherever you're listening to this. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. See you then. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.